have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in Genesis chapter 1. You can't be any more in the beginning than Genesis chapter 1. I have pastored now for 19 years. In 19 years, I've done a lot of pastor stuff. Some of the pastor stuff that I have done in my 19 years of pastoring is funerals. I have also done weddings. To many, that is one and the same, a funeral and a wedding. If you were to ask me, Pastor, which one would you prefer doing, I would say to you, it really, really matters who's in the casket and who I'm marrying. Because if it's someone that I don't know very much at all, I would say, I go in and I function as a pastor at a funeral, I am always told what to do at a wedding. I am always told where to stand, how to dress, what color to put on. I give hours and hours and hours. And I want to make some adjustments based on statistics. A pastor in general gives about 12 hours to a wedding ceremony. And I did some study and I found this. Wedding services is a $70 billion industry. I think I'm way too small a part of that industry. In fact, I studied out that the average wedding today is costing couples and more than likely costing parents between twenty dollars to $70,000 on average. All the expenses, dinners, travel, accommodations, printed materials, rentals, photographs, reception, of course, the wedding gown. And I want to add on there, and the minister, for a really large sum. That's what I think should happen. The fact is, everybody wants a perfect wedding, and I think it's because in their minds they intend to have a perfect marriage. But a wedding and a marriage are two vastly different things. When we stand and we declare wedding vows, I don't know if it sinks in, but we are actually projecting into the future. One wrote this, Wedding vows are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. I take you from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness, in health, to love and to cherish, till death do us part. The fact is, bound into the beauty of the ceremony is the future fragility of marriage. Because in the most ideal moment our marriage will ever exist in, we are already promising to tough it out through tougher times. We acknowledge at the onset the fragility of the marriage relationship and we are making promises to stick it out. What's unfortunate is when we stood and repeated those vows for richer or for poorer, we had no idea how much poorer it could actually get. When we said for better or for worse, we were a little confused as to how much worser things might be able to become. But the fact is, marriage exists in the real world. We must get back to Scripture and establish what I would call eternal principles, forever foundations, non-negotiables, things that God wove into the fabric of Scripture, communicating His design to us. We cannot comprehend what the New Testament will teach us about marriage. We're going to handle some incendiary ideas 
like submission of a wife and loving leadership of a husband. But we cannot grasp the intention of God's design and instruction in the New Testament until we ground and root ourselves, moor ourselves, tie ourselves to these forever foundations, these eternal principles. We have to return to these basics. I have shared these before, but I think it is important that we do it again here in Genesis chapter 1. We're all the way back at the beginning. We are hearing God as God designed things to be literally in verse 26 of Genesis 1. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them, notice that plural pronoun, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. We have just rehearsed the creation of mankind by God. His purpose and His intention behind it. Let us, there's an inner Trinitarian conversation going on between God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Create man after our likeness, in our image, distinguishing humanity from all the other beasts and creatures of creation. We are different. And as God is communicating in these verses, we are learning some eternal principles that we must revisit and grasp. The first thing that we learn from Scripture is this. Men and women are of equal value. Now that doesn't sound maybe like something that needs to be said. But the fact is, a lot of marriages run into trouble because they veer from this eternal principle. Men and women are of equal value. I emphasized the plural pronoun, them. It is very clear within Scripture that men and women are of equal value and are two rule together. That's inescapable. They are to subdue, they are to replenish, they are to be fruitful and multiply. It is also very clear from within Scripture that men and women have distinct roles. Men and women are of equal value. That is according to God. Yet they have distinct roles. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, we read, male and female created he them. That's kind of a summary. And in chapter 2, we get the specifics of what God summarizes for us in chapter 1. In Genesis 2.18, we read this. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an helpmeet for him. Now, God has looked at creation, and over again in Genesis 1, He said, It was good. It is very good. 
And then he assesses something that is not good. This stands out in stark contrast from the rest of the tone of Genesis 1 and 2. This is not good that man should be alone. I will solve this for man. We get now to verse 21. Here is God's solution. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. See, that is maybe the weirdest thing I've ever heard. God caused Adam to fall asleep. Now, Adam was in the midst of what we could call a utopian environment. This was perfect. He existed in paradise. He had the perfect occupation. He had perfect communion with God. And yet God's assessment was he needs something more, something specific, a help meet, a helper suitable unto him. And so God puts Adam to sleep. And as Adam sleeps, the Bible says that God in some way took a rib from Adam, closes the flesh up instead thereof, and of the very same substance that he made man, God made him a woman, communicating another layer of the reality that men and women are of equal value. Yet they have distinct roles. Now let me say it to you this way. When God made Eve, Adam was asleep. Which means God did not ask Adam for any input when he created Eve, when he made woman. God did not say, Adam, what were you thinking? What did you want? What's on your wish list? He simply made Eve, rouses Adam from his sleep, brings Eve to Adam, and Adam in this moment has the responsibility of naming her, and Adam says this, she shall be called woman, because she was made of man. And then he communicates immediate acceptance. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. He does not say, Eve, once I hear you talk, I'll maybe decide whether I want you or not. He does not say, Eve, if you promise to not age and never physically change, I'll love you. He does not say, God, if we could come back down here, I was hoping for a little different hair color or eye color. Immediate acceptance is communicated because according to God's divine plan, he put this together. And it is clear from within Scripture that the responsibility of headship is assigned to man. Now, you may have read, certainly have probably heard, she was made from his rib, not from his foot, as he would tread upon her or be above her, not from his head, so that she would be superior or above him, not from his hand, so that she would be there to be a servant, but from his side to illustrate closeness, companionship, from his side, his helpmeet, his helper suitable. God looked down and created man and woman after his likeness. Men and women are of equal value, yet according to Scripture, they have distinct roles. 
That's evident. The third thing I'll establish is this. It comes in Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. This is the classic announcement of marriage. This is God ordaining marriage. That's what this is. This is rehearsed in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul writes his classic passage on marriage in Ephesians 5. This is why we have to get these eternal principles in our hearts so that we can filter and understand everything that is taught later on. Here it is, Genesis 2. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now I could preach on that for a while. A man should leave his mother and his father. And some wives are nudging their husbands and say, you're supposed to leave your mother behind. And cleave unto his wife. He is glued. He is welded unto his wife. They who were at one time two separate entities now become one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. There is intimacy. There is closeness. There is communion. It is as God intended it. Marriage is not a governmental institution. It is God's divine idea. It is sourced in eternal wisdom. Men and women are of equal value. Undeniably, they have distinct roles. Marriage is God's idea, and family is God's plan. Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it. Now, some people have taken the fruitful aspect of that verse very seriously. You see, this fruitful analogy is used throughout Scripture. You say, be fruitful and multiply. Yes, here's what we read in Psalm 128.3. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house, thy children like olive plants round about thy table. You say, so my kids are olive plants and my wife's a vine. It's a scriptural image. Here's what we do derive from this. Family is God's plan. God declared the genders, male and female. God outlaid the design for a husband and a wife to come together. God put out there the plan was family. When we grasp God's original order and design from his divine wisdom, we can understand why this cosmos, this world system, and Satan, the prince and the power of this air, is attacking this design is attacking this divine wisdom. Now there's one more forever foundation that I think we have to come to grips with about our marriages. And it is this. Marriage is cursed. You didn't have to tell me that. We're one year in, we're two years in, we're 10, 12, 19, 25, we're 58 years in. Yes, it's cursed. But I mean factually, marriage is cursed by sin. Now, let's go all the way back to the beginning and understand something. Genesis chapter 3. God designed marriage to be a blessing. It is, but it is under the curse of sin. Verse 3. But of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Eve's talking, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent, who is Satan, said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. 
And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Sin enters into the world. Now, we can tie a bunch of principles together, and this just requires a little bit of mental work. Men and women are of equal value, yet they have distinct roles. Headship, the weight of responsibility, is with the man. Let's just visit the conversation where Eve is seduced, is tempted into eating the forbidden fruit. She eats first, and then she takes it to Adam. He follows suit, and he eats. And yet, even though Eve ate first, the responsibility lays on Adam. Romans 5 and verse 12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so that death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Here is a fact. Here is a forever principle. You are a sinner. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Which means your marriage is the union of two vile sinners. You say, well, that doesn't sound like a recipe for success. Sounds like a recipe for struggle. It sounds like a recipe for a struggle that can be won spiritually and ultimately become a success. The fact is your marriage and my marriage is cursed because it's the union of two sinners and we live out our marriages in the midst of a world that does not function as God intended for it to function. Somehow, in some way, your marriage and my marriage is touched every day by the sin of our world. And yet at the same time, it's not an accident that we are conducting our marriages in this broken world. If we can grasp what God laid out and by faith believe it, it helps us to understand how to submit to the rest of what God asks of us. Men and women are of equal value, but she's the weaker vessel. No doubt they have distinct roles This is not an institution thought up by men or devised by government or even looked at as the thing to do as the church. Marriage is God's idea, family is God's plan, and marriage is cursed. And so we must get back to the Word of God. The Bible says in Proverbs 24, verses 3 and 4, Through wisdom is an house builded. And by understanding it is established. And by knowledge shall the chambers be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. That's a really great promise. What is communicated there is by God's wisdom, a home, a marriage, a family is built. It is furnished with good things. Now in our minds we think, is that a five-star vacation? Is that a bigger and better house? Is that an always upwardly ascending lifestyle and upwardly ascending physical happiness and love? That is not the promise. But if we will apply God's wisdom, he will build our house, he will furnish our home, and the verbiage there is with precious and pleasant things. 
So if we're going to truly grasp how to move forward, we've got to get back to Scripture and get this. There are some incendiary topics communicated within Scripture, but we cannot negotiate with it. We cannot debate about it. We must on faith accept that God has our best in mind. We're going to get to 1 Peter chapter 3 and we're going to study God's instruction, biblically speaking, to wives and God's instruction, biblically speaking, to husbands. Now, one of the striking facets of 1 Peter 3 is this. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 are, are written to husbands and wives. The first six verses are instructions to wives. And 1, verse 7, is instruction to a husband. And immediately you think to yourself, well, of course it is, because it was written by a man. Peter wrote it, and he wrote six verses to wives and only one for men. Well, we do know that Peter had a mother-in-law, so we do know that Peter was married. So I'm going to say Peter probably understood a few of the trials of marriage. However, ultimately, Peter didn't write this. The Holy Spirit wrote this. And let me say, the entire letter of 1 Peter is written to people who are struggling and people who are suffering and people who are in unfair conditions. And Peter understood, certainly in the culture of that day, that women had a lot more unfair to deal with than men did. And so he instructs them for six verses. And some of what he says is pretty stunning stuff. He uses words like meek and quiet. So a wife is supposed to be quiet. I will not be here next week. He even uses the analogy that Sarah calls Abraham Lord. You want me to... Oh, I am definitely not coming next week. But he'll come back in verse 7 and he'll say to the husband, you better treat your wife right or your prayers will be hindered. He's putting so much emphasis on the marital relationship and grasp this. He's not telling a woman not to talk. He's talking about kind and peaceable nature. He's not talking about you have to call your husband Lord or King or His Highness. God rejects that mentality. It is a quiet, humble reverence in the heart. There is something that God wants us to understand, and it is incendiary. It's tough. And it all begins with one word, the word submission. I have found from within Scripture, success in marriage revolves around two words, submission and love. And if you want to truly be fair, which I will strive to do, love and submission. Loving leadership and submission of the wife. This is a hot potato within Scripture. But when you get all the way back to what God intended for marriage, Adam, in perfection, loved as he should love. And Eve submitted as she should submit in her heart. But when sin came on the scene, one of the curses of sin was that Eve would now vie for headship or authority with Adam. And Adam would now lead like a despot trying to force his authority on his wife. It is an actual scriptural struggle, but we have to get back to saying, I submit and I love, like the scripture teaches. You say submission. Are you sure it's in there? Well, let me do this. Let me establish this for you. All throughout the New Testament, we get this. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, like what? Like Jesus, that's what chapter 2 will tell us. Like Jesus submitted to the will of his Father, ye wives... Let this really hit you. 
Be in subjection, I have to yell it, to your own husbands. That's tough. Now in Colossians 3.18, here's another classic passage. Now Peter has spoken on the topic. Paul will speak on the topic in Colossians 3. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Like a puzzle piece, this is how it works. This is setting it right. Submit. Titus. Titus is talking now to... He's just talking to old ladies. I can't, I can't hide it. He says... Aged women, he's saying, hey, old ladies, here's what you should do. Be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. Teach the young women. What are they to teach the young women? Well, to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers of the home, good, and here it comes. You see that? Do I even have to say it? Then it goes online, and people think, guys, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Paul told the believers at Ephesus, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. There is absolutely no escaping that fitness in the Lord requires submission of the wife. You can't get past it. You can't work your way around it. You can't negotiate it out. It is in there. Now listen, submission in this is not silence. Submission in this is literally an attitude of kindness and gentleness. And it is, in fact, a reverence and a helpfulness. It is within Scripture and it shows up over and again. Yet we get back to our forever foundation. Men and women are of equal value. In each of those instances, the Scripture is painstaking to say unto your own husband. Men, by nature being men, are not automatically in control of all women. You don't get to Lord like a little fat king on your throne that all women do your bidding unto your own husband. This is within the confines of a God-designed marriage. It is within the setting of loving leadership being offered. It is submission and it is inescapable. It's hard to avoid. In fact, before Paul ever says, wives, submit yourself unto your own husbands, in verse 21 he says, submit yourselves one to another. We all have to submit ourselves to each other. This is the idea of falling in rank underneath. Now, again, let's go back and simply, like a teacher, revisit our forever foundation. God created woman of man, brings her to man. Adam sees, Adam has the responsibility and says, she shall be called woman. When Eve is tempted and brings the fruit to Adam and Adam eats. Adam bears the responsibility. Adam takes the responsibility of being the one to whom sin has entered the human race. When I say submission and when I talk about rank, I'm not saying it as a man shouting down women. I'm saying let's link this to our eternal forever foundation. We get this from the onset. There's a responsibility that lies with man. When you stand before God, that weight of responsibility is there. This passage on submission does not mean you're going to get a sandwich made for you when you get home. Now, that may mean you get a sandwich made for you. I don't know what you married. I don't know if she can even make a sandwich. I'm treading on thin ice even talking about this. I get it. 
I'm not saying this mandates that you get what you want and you get the chief seat on the couch and you always get to hold the remote if that's even a thing anymore. I don't know. Technology's changed. But what it does mean is the responsibility lies with you and the helper suitable as God designed it must comprehend that and it requires, it requires death to self. How am I supposed to do that? What is my example? Well, like Jesus submitted to the will of his Father. God the Father loved Jesus. Jesus begs, prays. But yet he submits for the betterment to the will of his Father. And not only should wives submit, husbands must love. Again, this is inescapable. Ephesians 5.25 Husbands, love your wives. Even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Husbands, you make the decision to agape love your wife. What's my standard? Like Jesus loved the church. Be more clear and died for it. All right. So what you're telling me is it should be a selfless, sacrificial love. Yep. That's the standard for you to give to your wife by decision. Husband's love. He writes it this way in Colossians. I think this is strong. Colossians 3.19. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Which means in your carnal heart, you can have this lordship syndrome that allows you to resent. And Paul says, hey, Love her, do not be bitter against her. He's writing to believers, by the way. Not writing to a lost world. In Ephesians 5, 28, he comes back and he says this, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. A man's love for himself is such a basic tenet of humanity that God uses it as a standard. In effect, he says, hey men, you know how you love yourself? Yeah. You know how you feed yourself? Uh Uh-huh. You know how you cherish yourself and prioritize yourself? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, love her like that. Uh, What? Because if you love her, you love yourself because two separate entities in God's union have become one. You cannot differentiate the two. Loving leadership does not allow you to prioritize on yourself and force your way. There is a true union that exists and submission and love must be there. A love like this is not a natural love. We're not talking about warm fuzzies. We're not talking about those first dates. How many of you are beyond the tickly belly syndrome within your marriage? Oh yeah. There's honest people in here. Others of you are like, never, never goes away. Yes, it does. I watch you walk to the car. I haven't seen you hold hands in 13 years. Honestly, you're fighting before the door is closed. It's cool. It's all of us. That's why this is in here. We're not talking about the emotions. So what you're saying is I got to get back to the place where I honestly think he's good looking. And pastor, to be honest, he's not. He was. There was a moment in time. I'm not going to lie to him. I'm not going to lie to myself. It's not what it once was. I am not even going the other direction. I'm not talking about warm fuzzies like that. I'm talking about a decision of the intellect, a commitment of the will, agape, choice love. It's not natural. 
John is the beloved disciple. I want you to listen to a myriad of verses within his letters. Tell me where you hear any negotiables. 1 John 3.11, for this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed from death to life. Here's one of the ways we know we're actually Christians, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. 1 John 3.18, my little children. Let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. 1 John 4, 16. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. 2 John 1, 5. And now I beseech thee, lady, not lady like a woman, lady like the church, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. Love one another. Love one another. This is not a natural love. In fact, this agape love is actually defined as a selfless, committed love of intellect and will which places value upon the beloved, even though they may be undeserving or unattractive or even unable to return the same. I choose to love like this. This is how God so loved the world. Was a sinful world able to give love back to God? No. Were they attractive and loving? No. He came unto his own and his own received him not. He was rejected by his own, yet God so loved the world by commitment and choice that he sent his only begotten son. It's selfless. It's sacrificial. It's complete. Love is the first fruit of the Spirit. Love is is the first fruit of the Spirit, which indicates I cannot love as I should love unless I am walking in the Spirit of God. If I walk in the Spirit, I will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. This love by choice is tied directly to my walk with God. This is true love. So it can't be done. He says love one another, and then he says love is of God. We must have this in ample supply. God's supernatural love, one wrote, flows through the believer and it's different than the love that the world knows and understands. It is such a powerful force that it can cover a multitude of sins. It can overlook shortcomings. These are forever foundations. It's eternal principles. This isn't Baptistic ideology. This isn't me as a man standing up here and shouting you down. Men and women are of equal value. They have distinct roles. Marriage is God's idea. Family is God's plan. And marriage is the union of two sinners cursed by sin. So we must return to the wisdom of God so that he can build our homes and furnish our marriages with pleasant and precious things. And we cannot escape that this requires submission and love all like Jesus. Love. In conclusion, I simply want to take a quick walk through this. What love are we talking about? Well, you know, I kind of want a new car. I'd like him to love me like that. Mm. I kind of want her to always do what I want, and I want to yell and get my way. I want that kind of submission. No, we got to have scriptural principles. Our primer on love, literally our standard is 1 Corinthians 13. Here's what the Bible says to us. Charity suffereth long. Love, like Jesus loves, is patient. Isn't it interesting that the first evidence of true love is patience? 
patience. It has a very long fuse. Does that sound like you? Uh, mm, For the last 33 minutes, it sounds a lot like me. I've sat here in perfect silence. I've been a good boy. Love has a long fuse. The first evidence of Christ-like love is patience. Secondarily, it is kind. This word means that not only do we take injury from someone with patience, but we return with kindness. Jesus even had the audacity to tell his disciples to love their enemies. It's kind. It does not envy. That's jealousy at the deepest, most corrupt and destructive level. This means that true love is contentment with what God has given it. It's not always hoping for something more or one more change or a little more this or that or the other. It does not envy. It does not boast does not go around shining the spotlight on itself. In fact, the language says this is one who brags on himself or herself, merely indicating that they love themselves. It refers to somebody who talks a lot about themselves. You can't be full of yourself and full of agape love. Agape love must push you out. Love is not arrogant. One author said this, arrogant people think they're better than other people. They think they know more than they actually do. They consider themselves holier than others and imagine themselves more gifted than they really are. Blind to their own glaring sins, personal weaknesses, and doctrinal errors. That is not love. You're not perfect. Love does not behave itself unseemly, the Bible says. It means it's not rude. Love is courteous, considerate of how its behavior affects others, even in little things, seeks not its own. We could understand love does not insist on getting its own way. Agape love is an uncommon, unnatural concern for others. It is the selfless pursuit of someone else's blessing. It's caring for others first. That doesn't sound anything like a husband who stomps his foot, raises his voice, clenches his fist, and gets his way. It's not easily provoked. That literally means it doesn't easily fall into a fit of anger. Paul basically says it takes two people to have a provocation, refuse to be the other person. It never capitulates. It's not easily provoked. Our inability to demonstrate this kind of love is not a lack of self-control. It indicates a lack of spirit control. We're not in the condition we're in because of our personality or our our wirings or our experiences. Certainly all of those things can impact our spiritual condition. But all of it is overcomable if we will walk in the spirit. Spirit control. It thinks no evil. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. We all have like a little mental ledger, do we not? I don't like them. They aren't nice. They didn't say nice things. They looked at me funny. I don't like how their breath smells. I don't like what they said to my kid. I don't like what they do in the workplace. I don't like them because they have a nicer house. I don't like them because they have a nicer car. One wrote this, resentment has an amazing memory. And it does, doesn't it? And within our marriages, some of the walls that we build up is nothing more than bitterness and resentment that we have jotted down on a ledger, socked away in a safe somewhere and locked it tight and bring it out every time we want to feast on that feeling and that sensation one more time. But true love thinks no evil. One author wrote, one of the fine arts in life is to learn what to forget. To learn how to forgive 
True love fights the natural desire to write things down and remember it forever. True love fights that. It thinks no evil. It rejoices not in iniquity. It rejoices only in the truth. It bears all things. All of life's problems, all of the suffering, despite hard work and even at times opposition, it bears it, it believes it. Taking the kindest view, love always believes the best. Agape love is eager to believe the best about people. That sounds like us, doesn't it? I was eager to believe less. I mean, when, a, when, when all the political commercials start, I'm kind of pumped about it. I love that. When for 14 months... We see all the politicians come on. And you know what we think to ourselves? You know what? I'm eager to believe the, I'm just eager to believe the best about this person. I think they have my best at heart. Our first thought is, I hate your ad. I wish there was a way to forget you existed. I don't want to know you. I don't want to hear from you again. Just let me, just tell me when it is in November of next year and I'll show up. We're not eager to believe the best out of anyone. Listen, what this indicates is in all the world, when all the world looks at you with a frown, you should be able to come back into your home and comprehend that there's one person who actually sees the best, who actually believes the best, who actually smiles and believes all those good things. It is carried on when it hopes all things. It never stops hoping. We live, one wrote, in the negative and accusative case. This love doesn't do that. It endures all things. If we're to love like Jesus loves, we just never quit. There's no quit in that kind of love. Nothing can separate us, the Bible says, from the love of Christ. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. What good is this kind of love if we quit? It just doesn't quit. We have simply established some forever foundations that enable us to understand where God is coming from when he gives us specifics. Men and women are of equal value who have distinct roles. Marriage is God's idea and family is God's plan and yet marriage is under the curse of sin. If we're going to get back to the place where we have God's wisdom, he will build our house and furnish it with precious and pleasant things, you know, like happiness and joy and fulfillment and peace. And in order for us to actually arrive there, we have to grasp the distinction of roles and fully comprehend submission of the wife and the love of the husband. And all of that is as Jesus. Submit like Jesus and love like Jesus. There's no self in this. We have the primer on love. It's a decision that we make. Now you say, well, it sounds like you're kind of leaving us where we got to come back the next two weeks. Exactly. That's the whole point to learn what submission and love actually is. Ultimately, we've got to be better Christians. Ultimately, we've got to be more like Jesus. We have to submit in love like he does. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.